April 2nd of 2007, my wife and I, and uh, Neil Sneed and his brothers, and uh, another lady from uh, the church that we were at in St. Charles, Ridgecrest, loaded up all of our belongings into a, uh, a big moving truck, and I led the way, and Margaret followed behind in the car, and Ezekiel was about 10 months old, and he screamed and cried the whole way to Hannibal, <clears throat> and, uh, and we came here to Hannibal to, to start a church, believing that there were lots of churches in, in Hannibal filled with Christians who loved Jesus, who understood the gospel, but also understanding that there were many people who had not heard the gospel, many people who had not responded in faith to the gospel, even some who had were disconnected from churches for various reasons, and so we came in faith to start a new church, and uh, that day we were met by uh, my mom and dad to help us unload the truck and move into our house, and uh, Margaret and I met with different folks over the course of the next two months, and the first Sunday in June, about two months later, we met that Sunday morning on, off-Broadway with a group of about 20 people who uh, I'd managed to sell on this idea of a new church uh, here in Hannibal. I believe uh, eight of those people, seven or eight of them, are, are here tonight still. But um, that first Sunday that we met, we talked about the thing that we wanted to be the very center, the very heart of who we are as a church. And so that Sunday I preached on what is the gospel. I believe that was the first message I preached to that group of believers, what is the gospel. And since then I have uh, preached to the people of Believer's Church on Sundays about 130 times, I figure. Uh, Maybe a little more. And so, in coming into tonight, my very last night here as the uh, pastor teacher of Believer's Church, there was somewhat of a quandary, quandary what to preach about. Uh, definitely 130 sermons plus does not exhaust uh, the depth of all that Scripture has to say. But in light of that many sermons to this group of people, the question was, well, what do, what do I preach? What do I say this final opportunity to address this body? And a couple months ago, as um, we sat, Michael and Jerry and, and Matt and I sat and talked about what to preach over the, the course of the next several months here at Believer's Church, and as we had all thought about, prayed about, prepared uh, what to look at from the book of Philippians, and we we sat down with calendars and talked about what to preach on what nights and how to go about it. We came to this night, April 25th, knowing that it would be uh, officially our, our elder installation service, knowing that it would be my final Sunday preaching. I said, what do, we pre- what do I preach? And uh, Jerry said, why, why, don't you, why don't you take a break from Philippians that night, and why don't you preach from Acts chapter 20? And uh, the more we sat and talked about it, it seemed like a pretty good deal. Um, pretty, good, pretty good way to go. Because 
Um, in Acts chapter 20, you have uh, the Apostle Paul who started a church talking to the leadership of that church for what he believes will be the last time in his life. Now, uh, the similarities between me and the Apostle Paul, between this church and that church, are few and far between. Uh, but there at least are a few similarities, and all truth is God's truth, and God's truth is always relevant and applicable, and so we're going to jump into Acts chapter, <clears throat> excuse me, 20, verses 28 through 32. Tonight, if you have your Bible, I invite you to go ahead and turn there. Before we jump in, I want to give you just a little bit of background, and so let me tell you about Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 opens with the Apostle Paul arriving in the city of Ephesus, he finds a group of disciples, of, of followers, students of a man named John the Baptist, uh, who is the cousin and the forerunner to Jesus. And these men knew some of the message of the kingdom of God, but they did not fully know it. They did not fully know the gospel, the ins and outs of who Christ was, what he came to do, and that he had finished his work and was risen from the dead and, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so Paul declared the gospel to these men. Uh, God quickened their hearts. They believed the message that they heard, and they received the promise that all New Testament believers receive. They received the promise of the Holy Spirit. And what happens there at the beginning of Acts 19 is like a mini day of Pentecost. It's an advancing of the church, an advancing of the kingdom of God. And then what follows in the rest of Acts 19 are some pretty uh, visible supernatural events. We're told that, that Paul was, was working and would wipe the sweat from his brow with uh, a rag and that people would steal his rags that he'd wiped his forehead with and they would lay them on those who were sick and those people were healed. We're told about a group of wannabe exorcists who try to uh, use the name of Jesus and the demons respond, Paul we know and Jesus we know, but who are you? And they hand them their tails. They completely open a can of you-know-what on these wannabe exorcists. And uh, we're told of God moving in people's lives in, in phenomenal ways in, in such extent that they are willing to part with great riches, loads and loads of cash that was tied up in their previous sinful lives because they have now come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so when, when you look at what God did in Ephesus, there's no question that this was a God thing, that this was more than the Apostle Paul could have mustered on his own. And a church came to be there in the city of Ephesus. And Paul stayed there uh, about as long, if not longer, than any other city he went to where he planted a church. He stayed there two plus years, and eventually Paul left. And after a couple months in Greece, uh, this is where we pick up in the beginning of Acts 20, Paul decides that he's going to head to Jerusalem, and he's going to stop at some places along the way to revisit churches and just check in on them and, and see how they're doing and encourage them. And Paul wants to get to Jerusalem 
by the day of Pentecost. This was a Jewish celebration. Uh, It was the uh, beginning of the church. The New Testament church uh, was on the day of Pentecost, so it would have been a very special celebration for Jewish Christians in particular. And Paul wanted to get Jerusalem by the celebration of Pentecost. And so he's, he's trying to be expedient in his travel. And he wants to visit with the leaders, the elders, the pastors from the church at Ephesus. But he doesn't actually want to go to the city of Ephesus because he knows that it'll be a really good visit, but it would take a lot of time. So he goes a little bit further down the road and tells these, sends a message for the elders the pastors, to meet him at that point. And that's where we pick up in Acts 20, 28. And on my last Sunday, I want to leave our elders with the words that the Holy Spirit spoke through Paul to the elders at the church at Ephesus. So Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Excuse me. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your great love demonstrated to us and for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you that Jesus loved you, your son, while on the earth, loved you enough to be obedient to the end, to humble himself to death, even death on a cross. I thank you that you did not let Jesus see decay, but that you rose him from the dead. You raised him from the dead, that he finished the work, that he lived the life that we should live but can't, that he died the death that we deserve to die but don't have to, and that he rose victorious. Father, we thank you that Jesus is seated on the throne. We thank you that Jesus, now seated on the throne, has poured out the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we rejoice that you are present among us this evening as the gift of God, superintending the people of God. We thank you that you have brought to life our dead hearts, and we pray that even now you would illuminate our minds to understand the Scriptures, that you would give us hearts that are ready to receive your truth. I pray that you would speak clearly through me. I pray that you would speak clearly to this body and to Michael and to Jerry. Father, we love you, and we know you love the church. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless this church, bless this body. Not for us, but for your name's sake, Lord. 
Not to us be the glory, but to you be the glory, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. So tonight, that seemed really loud. So tonight, um, as I preach through Acts 20, 28 through 32, there are things that every one of us as believers will be able to grab hold of and benefit from, I trust. But there are things that, that apply particularly to Michael and to Jerry. And so I believe that all of us will benefit. I pray that they will benefit most because if they benefit most, then you will continue to benefit from this message in return. And so there's several things that I want to point out, five things, five truths that the Holy Spirit speaks to the pastors, to the elders at the church, of the church at Philippi or at Ephesus. And the first of those is that yours is a great responsibility. As elders, yours is a great responsibility. In verse 28, the word says that your responsibility is to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The oversight of this body, of, of the lives of these believers who have joined, who have committed, who have covenanted to be part of Believer's Church, the oversight of this church has been entrusted to you men. And the value of this body, the worth of this church, is the blood of Christ. The worth and value is not in the people themselves, although everyone has worth and value as an image bearer of God, created in the image of God. But the worth and value of this church is that it is a people who have been called out by God the Holy Spirit, who have been purchased by the blood of God the Son and have been entrusted to your care. You know, when I tried to think as I was reviewing my notes of, of a picture, uh, and this is, is a shoddy picture at best, um, and, and for those of you who are like real fantasy nerds, I'm going to butcher this, but I, I was thinking about like, this idea of being responsible for something of great value. Uh, and I instantly thought of movies. And in particular, I thought of the movie Lord of the Rings. And since Sarah Campbell is, is one of the biggest fantasy nerds that I, I, I know of, I had to call her to make sure I got my details right. And she wasn't able to be here tonight because of sick children, but she coached me well. And the particular scene that I thought of was, if you're familiar with, with the movie, uh, <clears throat> is when the council, in the first movie, the council gathers, and there's like a dwarf and a, and a couple elves and, and uh, this just regular dude and then this wizard dude and just there's like nine guys and then there's four hobbits, which are like midgets with hairy feet. And, <clears throat> and they're all gathered because of a ring. And, and this ring is incredibly 
powerful. This, this ring, with this ring, the one who possesses it has infinite power and potential to do good or evil, but the ring itself is very evil. And so whenever someone takes it into their possession, it generally ruins them and, and just completely makes them as base and as sinful and as twisted uh, and as devious as they could be. And the council decided this ring has to be destroyed. There's an enemy who wants it, and, and he's got all the goods to come after it, and so this ring has to be destroyed. But we know that this ring could potentially destroy anyone who it's entrusted to. And the council decides to give the ring to one of the hobbits, this dude named Frodo, and it's his mission to bear the weight of this, the power of this ring to destroy and to twist and to pervert. It's, it's his burden to bear. And he has to take this ring and take it to be destroyed. Now, now the church is not a, a thing of evil, and it's not a thing that will twist you. It, it could twist you. Any, any position of power or leadership could twist you, pervert you, transform you, not for good, but for evil. But the, the church is a very precious thing. And not just anybody can assume leadership in the church. Not just anyone can say, oh, well, I'll, I'll take care of this. I'll do it. I'll lead. I'll bear the weight. I'll bear the responsibility. Not just anyone really has it in them to do that. It's a thing of such great worth. It's a thing that is so inherently valuable to God. It's a thing that is so precious. It's a great responsibility. It's a great responsibility to care for the church. It's not just a job. There are, there are guys who've taken this task for themselves as a job. And that is a disgusting thing. God doesn't just want babysitters for the church. He wants men who will care for the church. And so this is a very great responsibility to care for the body that was purchased by the blood of Christ. And not just anyone can take this responsibility, which is the second thing we see. In verse 28, it says, The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The second thing is that you did not choose this work, but were chosen for it. It's a great responsibility to bear the care of the church. And so not just anyone can take that upon themselves and do it well. And so you did not choose this task. You did not choose this work, but you were chosen for it. Back in the, in the fall, Michael and I were talking and, and decided that it was time for our church to choose more elders to join the elder team and help bear the weight and look after the church. Bear the weight and responsibility 
and to carry out the task of caring for the church. And so we begin to pray about who the men in this body would be that would fill that that role, that would become elders, that would join our team. We felt very blessed that God had put lots of solid men in the church. And as we looked at the qualifications found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and found in Titus chapter 1, we looked and we saw that there's lots of guys who character-wise would not be disqualified. There's lots of guys who have godly character and are growing in godly character. And we were encouraged, but we prayed and asked the Lord who the most qualified men would be among our members and who the the best suited, best fitted men would be to join this team. And and we prayed and we talked on numerous occasions. and, And three of the names that kept coming up were Jerry and Matt Campbell and Jason Nichols. And we believe there's three parts in how elders are chosen in the church. We believe that the elder team, since they are spiritually responsible for the care of the church, should be able to know and discern who the best fitted men in the body are. But we also believe that there's a place for a voice, not a vote, but a voice from the body. We believe that's biblical. And so we put it before the members of the church. Here's the qualifications. Here's the list of the men. Pray about it. Nominate. Who are the two men that you believe would be best fitted, best suited, best qualified to join the elder team? And so we heard the voice of the church. And what was the voice of the church? Those three names. Jerry, Matt, and Jason. But then there's the third part, which is really the biggest part. And that's the voice, the witness of the Holy Spirit. And as we approach each of those men to say, will you consider this? They have to believe that it's a desire. They have to believe in accepting that it's a desire that the Holy Spirit has given them. And if they reject it, it's not because they simply don't want to do it. If they take it seriously. But rather, they must believe that it would not be pleasing to the Lord at this point for them to accept it. They they have to believe that that now is not the best time. I don't have a peace. I I don't feel like it would be a fit. I, I don't feel the desire to take this upon me and have a peace about it. And Jason immediately had prayed about it. Or he prayed about it for some time, I should say. Immediately he said, I have to pray about it. And then after some time, Jason said, no, I, I, don't, feel like I, I, can, I don't feel like I can receive this. I don't feel like I can accept this. I, I appreciate it, thankful, I'm honored, but I don't think, I don't believe that I can accept it. Then, then Matt said, I, I, think, I think so. Matt had some reservations. But as he continued to pray and continued to think about what they wanted to do with their lives for the Lord for quite some time now, Matt and Sarah have sensed that it would be God-honoring and it's a strong desire in them to be career missionaries, to be a part 
uh, in taking the gospel overseas, taking the gospel around the world into unreached people groups. And, and lately, they've, they've sensed that, well, the time to do that is not now. And yet, because they're so committed to sing the gospel go around the world, overseas and around the world, they've said, well, if we're not going to go physically, then we want to be in the position to be able to send people, really send people. And so what can we do to maximize the gifts and abilities and skills God has given us to make the most money possible, not for our benefit, not for our gain, not for our glory, but to be able to give as much as possible away to send other people who know the time is now. And so Matt and Sarah decided that's what they needed to do, and Matt decided, no, I I need to step back from this. I need to step back from being an elder. I don't know how long we'll be here. I, I can't commit to that. Now, when you look at these decisions, these are free decisions. No one forced Jason to decline. No one forced Matt to withdraw. Likewise, no one forced Jerry to accept. And so it looks like each man made their free decision. And it looks like the elders are who they are because people nominated and because men either accepted or declined. But scripture teaches both man's free choices, man makes real decisions, man's responsible for his actions, and it also teaches God's complete sovereignty. And all that happens, happens because God in his sovereign will ordained it. And nothing happens on the earth that, that was not ordained by our sovereign Lord. And so the reason why Jerry is an elder, the reason why Michael is an elder, the reason why Jason is not, the reason why Matt is not, is not simply because one guy chose to do it or thought he could do it, but ultimately because the Holy Spirit chooses sovereignly and providentially those who will pastor the church. And so we make free decisions and we pray about them, but behind our decisions is the sovereign and providential God who has chosen you for this task. He's chosen you for it. Do you you feel the weight of your appointment, men? It it has to be a desire. And, and And you sense the responsibility for it. But ultimately, behind that desire is the work of the sovereign spirit of God who has fitted and equipped and moved you and placed in you the desire for the work and the desire to commit yourself to the work. And so you are pastors because the Holy Spirit chose you to be pastors for this body. The third thing we see in the text, also in verse 28, is that the work must start in yourself. The work of pastoring the church begins in you. Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves. You're looking for something. Pay careful attention to yourself. There's some 
inspection going on in your life? What are you looking for? You're ever looking for sin. You're ever looking for the traces of sin in your life. Hebrews chapter 3, the Holy Spirit says through the author of Hebrews, verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? There is spiritual warfare going on in your heart between the flesh and the spirit. You are ever battling the world, the flesh, and the devil. You must ever look for the root of sin, the traces of sin that are affecting your heart. So often we look for external sins and we miss out on that which has taken root deep within. Richard Baxter in the Reformed Pastor says, How many do but change a disgraceful way of flesh-pleasing for a way that is less dishonorable and maketh not so great a noise in their consciences. You can look at your manner of living and you can say, I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't go here, I don't buy that, I don't think about this, I don't fantasize about that. And so on the outside and even in the, in the forefront, Things look very good, as good as anyone else. And we miss out. We overlook the things that are driving us deep within our hearts. And so, in your work of caring for the church, you have to be aware of sin in your own heart, deep within your own heart, and what's driving you and what your ultimate desires are, and what will, in your mind, ultimately bring you pleasure, and ultimately bring you comfort, and ultimately bring you satisfaction, and continue to ask if that thing is rooted in the gospel or not. So you are looking for, you're paying careful attention to traces of sin in your life and in your heart. You're also working for fruit. You're looking for sin, but you're working for fruit. In 2 Peter 1, we're told that growth in godly character makes our calling and election sure. We're not saved because of fruit, but fruit shows us that we're saved. When we become more like Jesus, we grow in confidence. We don't grow in confidence because we walk the right uh, aisle at the right time, at the right place, and said the right prayer prayer and we're dunked in the right pool. We don't assure ourselves because of things that happened 5, 10, 15 years ago. We assure ourselves because of a current profession that is backed up with fruit. Peter says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, 
you will make your calling and election sure. I want to make sure that sin is not strangling out faith in my heart. And I also want to make sure that the faith in my heart is springing forth and bearing fruit. Bearing fruit. John 15, 8. By bearing much fruit, we glorify God and prove ourselves to be disciples of Christ. Jesus says, fruit honors God and gives us assurance. So you're looking for sin as you do this work of pastoring the church that starts with yourself. You're looking for sin. You're working for fruit. And the third thing is, how do you cultivate it? Not by do better, try harder, but by the gospel. In verse 32, Paul says, Now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. What is the word of His grace? What is the word that tells us about His unmerited favor? What is His word that tells us about God's riches at Christ's expense? It's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The word of His grace which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified, that are set apart, that are called out to be children of God. How do you fight sin and bear fruit? Not by coming up with more things that you should do and check boxes of things that you shouldn't do, but by reminding yourself of the gospel, reminding yourself of a holy God who sees all things at all times, who is ever-present, who knows your sin, who's ready to judge your sin, but rather has already judged your sin at the cross, therefore freeing you of the weight of your guilt and liberating you to live the obedient life of a son of God that you never could and never will on your own, but that Jesus already has for you and now empowers you by the Holy Spirit to live. And so you're ever asking yourself, what is God delivered me from? As you wrestle with sin, God has delivered me from this. This is what the gospel reminds me. I don't overcome this sin simply by not staying up after 10 o'clock. I don't overcome this sin simply by not going to this place. But I remind myself that Jesus died enduring the wrath of God and rose from the dead so that this thing no longer owns me because instead I am now owned by Jesus Christ who purchased me with his blood. What has God delivered me from? What has God graced me with? He's graced me with a new heart. He's graced me with a new mind. He's graced me with a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance to come. He's graced me with a family. He's graced me with the ability to love. What does is, what is the gospel remind me of? What does living out of the gospel look like? And so your work begins with you looking for sin, working for fruit, and doing it all out of the power of the gospel. And the fourth thing is found in verses 28 and 31. And that is you must love your people as you love 
yourself. And verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Now, Paul says in Ephesians 5.29 that no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. So here's a question to ask for yourselves. Would you allow yourself to be absent in worship, to be seldom in community, to be inactive in giving, to be apathetic in devotion, to be unfruitful, to be deficient in character, to be careless in living? Could you continue in that pattern of living with no prick to your heart and no concern about the condition of your soul and just a sense sense of peace and ease? No, surely not. If you're believers, surely not. You could not endure for that state for a prolonged period of time with no cutting to the quick of your conscience. You care about your own soul more than that. And so if you will love these people as you love yourself, then will you allow others to do so? Will you allow others to continue in such a pattern of living and simply resign yourselves to letting them figure it out and get their act together. A good pastor is not one who bears with people simply waiting for them to figure it out. They will die. And if they were not truly converted and they have merely fooled themselves then they will have stored up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment and they will experience and endure God's wrath forever. A good pastor does not simply wait for people to quit being foolish because of sin and get around to coming back. A good pastor goes after people, sometimes even causing them to question whether or not they are truly a part of the church at all. You must love your people as you love yourself. You care more about your own soul than allowing yourself to live in such state. And so as you pay careful attention to yourself, you must pay careful attention to others and look for things in their lives. Which leads us to verse 31. Therefore be alert, remembering for three years that I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. The way that you love your people as you love yourself is that you have to be with them. We have to be with people to be able to examine their lives as we're seeking to examine our own. Sermons and Bible studies alone cannot fully complete this task. The job of giving care and oversight to the church extends far beyond formal teaching of Scripture. Paul says to the Thessalonians, I shared with you not only the gospel, but also my very life. And if you would love them as you love yourself, if you would seek to care for their souls even as you care for your own, you must be with them to know them. And the fifth thing that we see in the text is that you must be on guard. Paul says, verses 29 through 30, 
I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. From among your own selves. People will come in among you, and that from among your own selves. This divisive work, this destroying work, this destructive work will happen. It's a very hard thing to grasp, but we cannot afford to fail to acknowledge the propensity of our own depravity, the selfish motives and hidden agendas deep within each one of us, even as believers. Paul says, I desire to do good in Romans 7, but sin is ever-present. Even believers can have agendas and motives that will, in the end, bring division or destruction. Paul, Paul tells them that they must be careful about what goes on within. You men must be careful about without and within. Jerry, I very much agree with what you preached last week about finding unity within the body of Christ at large, meaning that believer's church is not an island unto itself in Hannibal, that there are other believers who love Jesus, and we must seek where possible to cooperate around the gospel. But there are also people in churches in this city, some in leadership and some who are not, and some who have heard statements from leadership in their church that say, after Sam leaves, I give it six months. After Sam leaves, it'll die. After Sam leaves, it'll fall apart. And Lord willing, some churches do come around B.C., and as, as others already have, as Jim Wojcik at, at First E Free already has, and said, whatever you need, if you need anything, we're here to help. No strings, no, no agenda, so it seems. But there might be others with an agenda. We give it six months. And when the six months ends, we'd like those 20 families to be at our church. And when the six months ends, we'd like those offerings to be at our church. And so, you guys have to be, as Jesus said, as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. And you have to be aware that even within believers, there is an ever-flowing undercurrent of the propensity to sin and do destruction and bring division. You must also be aware, even in our own body, and I speak not of men that I know, but merely the potential, because as Paul said, it was, it was probable for Ephesus, it's probable for any church, that there will be men or women, there will be people who will not speak twisted things, perverted doctrinal things, but rather will have an agenda, will have a cause that they believe is 
a worthy cause and and an important cause and they believe that it should be the most important cause for the church and they will seek to rally people to themselves to make their cause the mission of the church and you just have to be aware of it because God has entrusted the care of this church to you we believe that the local church is autonomous we believe that the congregation has a voice that in some things the congregation is very involved we believe in the priesthood of believers we believe that every member is a minister and yet scripture teaches very clearly that god has chosen you and that god will hold you accountable and so at the end of the day you men have to bear the weight and that means you have to decide in line with scripture under the direction of the holy spirit is this cause propel us in the direction that we need to go is this cause best embody the gospel and most mobilize this church to take the gospel into this city around the world and around the world or not. So you must look out for heretics. But I would say, perhaps in our context even more, you must be on the lookout for Christians or professing Christians with agendas. You must be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Michael and Jerry, look around. This church and its care, the, those who have committed themselves as part of Believer's Church have been entrusted to the two of you. And the care of these souls has been entrusted to you. And many times as I've thought about this, I thought about how poorly I have done and carrying out my work and other times as I thought about it I felt so overwhelmed that the idea of being freed of it is actually freeing because it's an incredible responsibility an incredible weight to bear that anyone would be foolish to take upon themselves without the prompting of God the Holy Spirit but I have great hope for you men and great hope for those that God in turn will add to this team to lead this church well, to be built up in the word of his grace and to go out into all the world and to make disciples. And so at this time, I'd ask Michael and Jerry for you guys to come forward. Michael, for you to reaffirm your commitment as an elder to the body and Jerry, for you to affirm it for the first time. I will read <clears throat> the vows for you, men, and if you guys could be prepared to respond. Do you affirm your faith in Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Savior. 
Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the Word of God, totally trustworthy, fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, the supreme, final, and only infallible rule of faith and practice? Do you sincerely believe the statement of faith and covenant of this church contains the truth taught in the Holy Scriptures? Do you promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the statements in the statement of faith and covenant, you will, on your own initiative, make known to the other elders the change which has taken place in your views since your assumption of this vow? Do you subscribe to the government and discipline of Believer's Church? Do you promise to submit to your fellow elders in the Lord? Have you been induced, as far as you know, your own heart, to accept the office of elder from love of God and sincere desire to promote His glory and the gospel of His Son? Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in promoting the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise to you on that account? Will you be faithful and diligent in the exercise of all your duties as elder, whether personal or relative, private or public, and will you endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your manner of life and to walk with exemplary piety before this congregation? Are you now willing to take personal responsibility in the life of this congregation as an elder to oversee the ministry and resources of the church and to devote yourself to prayer, the ministry of the word, and the shepherding of God's flock, relying upon the grace of God in such a way that Believer's Church and the entire church of Jesus Christ will be blessed. Will the members of Believer's Church please stand? Do you, the members of Believer's Church, acknowledge and publicly receive these men as elders, as gifts of Christ to this church? Will you love them and pray for them in their ministry and work together with them humbly and cheerfully that by the grace of God you may accomplish the mission of the church, giving them all due honor and support in their leadership to which the Lord has called them to the glory and honor of God. Would you extend your hands toward them as we pray for them? Father, I thank you for these men, and and I thank you that you have chosen them by your Holy Spirit, not only for salvation, but also to lead and shepherd and oversee Believer's Church. Father, I thank you that you have given them the deposit of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that you would ever and continually fill them with the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would equip and fit them with the necessary gifts to fulfill this task. Father, I pray that they would bear much fruit. I pray that as they preach your word, as they teach your word, both to large gatherings and in private settings and individuals' houses, that you would work powerfully 
to reform hearts and to transform lives to be like Jesus and that you would use them to call sinners to repentance and faith and that they would see many souls come to Christ. Father, we pray for a harvest of righteousness in their own lives and a a harvest of salvation, a harvest of souls through their preaching and their teaching and their counseling and their ministering and shepherding and overseeing of this body. Father, protect this church. I pray that you would give these men wisdom from above, not simply earthly wisdom, but the mind of Christ and the wisdom of God. I pray, Father, that you would give them teachable hearts, that you would help them to fully submit themselves to one another and to lead humbly this body and that you would add to their number other godly men led by the Holy Spirit as you would choose and as you would see fit. Father, I love you. I thank you for these brothers whom I love dearly. I entrust them and the care of this church and its people to you and pray, Lord, not for my sake, not for the honor of the name of Sam Byers, but for your name's sake, for the honor and glory of God and of his son, Jesus Christ, that you would be glorified in this church and bring children to salvation and bring neighbors of these people to salvation and bring people in this city to salvation, that you would mightily empower these people to be a people on mission with you, fulfilling your great commission here in Hannibal and in the world beyond. We love you and praise you for you are a faithful God and you will do it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated.